Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead. Follow your different. And we're back after our break for democracy. If you are one of the many who tweeted and emailed and said, hey, when are you coming back? Uh, glad you noticed we weren't around and glad you missed us. We are the oddcast for people who value real different conversations, conversations about business and life. And we're brought to you by my friends at Splunk, helping you bring data to everything, every question, every decision, and every action. Visit Splunk, S-P-L-U-N-K dot com slash D, the number two, the letter E. And my friends at NetSuite by Oracle are the number one cloud business system that encompasses every critical part of your business from finance, HR, order management, uh, and much more. Check out netsuite.com slash different today. That's netsuite.com slash different. On this episode, a truly legendary conversation with two extraordinary men, men who are on a mission to stop deadly wildfires. First is Charlie Croker. He's the founder and CEO of a highly innovative newer company called Zonehaven. And I met uh, Charlie and uh, some of his um, colleagues about a year ago at Splunk's annual customer conference. Zonehaven is using data to everything technologies to help government agencies and citizens both plan for and respond to serious disasters. Now, look, if you're a regular listener, you know I'm a champion of entrepreneurs. I'm a champion of technology, and I believe when legendary people come together to make a difference through entrepreneurship and technology, they can. And that's exactly why I love everything about what Charlie and Zonehaven is trying to do here by developing a new category of life-saving applications. Now, let me tell you about Cal Fire's chief, Jonathan Cox. But first, a little bit of background. The night of Saturday, August 15th, 2020, into the early hours of Sunday morning, August 16th, uh, were a night that no one who lives in Northern California will forget. It was highly unusual. A massive lightning storm hit the region. I remember it well. I was up for much of it, as many uh, people who live here were. Over 11,000 strikes of lightning hit Northern California. And as a result, they caused massive fires throughout the entire region. In the breathtakingly beautiful coastal area just south of San Francisco, a monster fire began consuming the Santa Cruz Mountains. It ultimately was called the CZU Lightning Complex Fire. And uh, we'll have more uh, information on the fire in our show notes at lockhead.com if you want to learn more. It was a horrifying fire, and it started eating the mountainous area uh, that has a lot of underbrush, some of the most beautiful ancient redwoods, and a lot of wonderful homes, towns, and businesses. Two days after the fire began, a rapid change in wind conditions caused a massive expansion of the fire to over 40,000 acres. While that was happening in the Santa Cruz region, at the same time throughout Northern California, similar monster fires broke out. In the modern history of Northern California, there have been few instances, if any, like this one. The crisis was extraordinary. The sky turned a horrible brown orange. It rained snowflakes of ash. The air was unbreathable, and this all took place for weeks. Our firefighters, police, and other legendary first responders were called to serve, were called to action in the face of monster fires and a massive resource shortage because everybody was spread throughout the region. It was truly terrifying. Many towns uh, near where we live were evacuated. 
And as a matter of fact, two pods of our family in different areas on different edges of, of two different fires had to evacuate. And they ended up coming to our place with all their dogs, cats, chickens, parrots, and everything in between. The entire uh, region was in a panic. At its peak, the fire near us, the CZU fire, destroyed almost 10,000 buildings. It also destroyed the beloved Big Basin Redwood State Park. And tragically, one person died in the fire. On September 22nd, Cal Fire reported that the CZU fire had destroyed over 86,000 acres and it had finally been contained. Chief Jonathan Cox is the Cal Fire executive responsible for fire operations in this region. Chief Cox and a handful of other legendary Cal Fire executives with help from executives from other fire departments and agencies, police forces, and other legendary first responders were directly responsible for stopping this horrible fire and saving this part of the world. At one point, it looked like the bigger towns in this area, Scotts Valley and Santa Cruz itself, could go up in flames. These legendary first responders, with help from technology uh, from Zone Haven, helped to save countless lives, homes, businesses, and some of the most beautiful ancient trees on the planet. On this episode, Charlie and Jonathan take us into this monster fire. They share how firefighting heroes stop these fires and save countless lives and billions in property. I must also tell you, it's a pretty rare opportunity to be able to sit down and say thank you to one of the leaders who was directly responsible for saving your community, your family, and your friends. So Charlie and Chief Cox, I want you to know how much I appreciate the incredible work you've done, and of course, this conversation. I also want to dedicate this episode to the legendary California first responders to whom we owe so much. I also want to say before we get started, if you need help or are in a position to help fire victims, you can also check out lockhead.com, the show notes for this episode, and uh, you can seek help or you can give help if you're in a position to. Now, hey ho. Let's go. Charlie, Chief Cox, it sure is great to have this opportunity to hang out with you. Great. I'm psyched to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. I'm so stoked. And I, I have to say off the top, I owe both of you and your organizations, and so does my whole family, a gigantic debt of gratitude. Uh, as I think you know, I live in Santa Cruz, California. And the job that Cal Fire and all the other agencies and the job that Zone Haven and your technology uh, and your partners, uh, what you did to save our part of the world, to save as many structures as you did, to save the lives that you did, uh, for as many days as you did, um, it was truly inspiring. And in a very real way, um, you saved lives of people who matter a lot to me, including potentially my own. So I want to thank you very much for the incredible job that you do in general and specifically the incredible job you've done in what has been a horrible fire season. Yeah, thank you, Chris. I appreciate that. So maybe let's get into it. I mean, my my mega question to jump into is how are you fighting these incredible fires when the fires are so extraordinary and clearly the resources that you have have been so tapped out 
it seems incredible what you were able to do here in the Santa Cruz fire and what you're able to do in general. And obviously, Charlie, we want to get to the role of technology and how important that is. But maybe just start kicking it open to both of you. What are the ways that you go about fighting these horrible monster fires? Yeah, I, I feel like I can, I can start that one off. I think we've said so often in the last few years, this is going to be the worst fire season ever, or this was the worst fire season ever. And I definitely can say, again, as we look a little bit in hindsight, this, this was something that was unprecedented for us. And, you know, it just keeps kind of building to a, to a new level. What we saw specifically in August of this year was something that California probably has not experienced in potentially 100 plus years. And that was 12,000 plus lightning strikes within a 72 hour period that led to 24 major wildfires burning at once across basically the north half of California. So, Chief, can you just give us those numbers again? 12,000 strikes. 12,000 lightning strikes in one night, if I remember right. Yeah, that was over a 72-hour period, the 12,000 strikes. Um, but, you know, a majority of those occurred on the on that Sunday, August 16th, as everyone will remember, on the Central Coast when it came through. We were all up a lot that night. It was a very unusual night, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. You know, I've grown up in this area. I've, I've never seen anything like it before. Um, and it really, it, it led to something that is not easy to respond to. And that is simultaneous major emergencies across the state. Um, you know, we're very good at when there's one or two large fires burning, getting an, a, an incident management team assembled uh, and getting resources drawn throughout the system. But this really was one of those moments where you had concurrent major emergencies happening in a small geographical area, really, in the Bay Area and a little bit north. And it really uh, turned into a prioritization of resources uh, based on the threat to humans, the threat to structures, uh, and really where we could get. Because a lot of these fires that were burning were in just very remote, inaccessible parts of California. How did they make the decision on what resources came to uh, CZU versus the SCU complex or, or others? Yeah, that's a good question. So the way that we operate in California is our, our first initial attack, when we get a fire that breaks out, we send resource to it. It's the closest resources, both from the state and the local districts. Uh, and we try to get a handle on it before the next day, before the next operational period. Once we get past a certain threshold of size and then time being, you know, 10 plus acres uh, in timber or into the next day, the next morning at 10 a.m., then the completely the game changes. Then we're reporting to a higher level at region. And then the whole multi-agency coordination comes into play to say, hey, we have a lot of fires. It's time to triage in Northern California. Where do we need to send resources? And that multi-agency prioritization list comes out twice a day. And it literally is the region folks looking at what are the values we have at risk, how many structures are at risk, how many people are evacuated, um, what's the potential threat to the lumber industry in this area, what's the potential threat to the, to the power grid in California. And that's where the resources get sent. Very detail-oriented, uh, but like being a doctor in a hospital, you have to try to do as much as you can for as many people. But that unfortunately means there are other people who aren't going to get those resources at that moment. I, I remember, Chief, as a as a layman watching this play out with tremendous interest, as you might expect, living where we all live. 
it seemed like you and the leadership of Cal Fire started to try to educate us very clearly that job one was the protection of life. Job two was the protect, protection of property. And job three was trying to contain these fires when you could. That's how I remember it. But, but how is it? Yeah, that's, that's exactly what it is. You know, there, no, nothing in California, it, none of this land is worth getting hurt or dying over, right? It will grow back. Nature will recover. And we do have, have to, on these large incidents, prioritize getting people out. Unfortunately, that's happening more and more often. You know, five years ago, it was fairly unprecedented to evacuate 50 to 70,000 people at a time. But that's increased um, as the years have gone on. Uh, and when you, when you know that Mother Nature is firmly in control, like she was on these incidents, it really was getting people out of the way, protecting as many structures and properties as possible, and then following up by putting in those containment lines when it became more favorable. I know for people who lost homes or um, people who had to evacuate extremely quickly, the question always comes, why can't you just put the fire out? And it really, we want to, but we have to do, we have to get the people out of the way first and we have to prioritize that, that life safety before we, before anything else. That's part of why we started working together with Jonathan was in the last three, four years, we started to see that big fires are really, um, a get people out of harm's way quickly rather than a put the wet stuff on the red stuff, right? And so with Jonathan, we've been figuring out how can we do that more efficiently? How can we help people to get out much more quickly? And CZU Complex was where he, Jonathan brought us in to test that. So Charlie, if I understand Zone Haven, and, and by all means, please educate me, but one of the things that you do is you bring in a diverse set of data as it relates to topology, as it relates to population, where people are, the geography, um, in some big detail. And you try to correlate that with wind and weather information, fire information, with sensors, cameras, etc. And I think one of the things that you're able to help the leadership, uh, in this case at Cal Fire with, is helping to understand what the fire's doing at a macro level, where people are who could be uh, hurt by this and sort of triangulate what to do when that, at least at a high level, that's what I think about with zone Haven, but tell me where I'm wrong, wrong and maybe blow open what the technology does for me. No, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, the, 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 the main focus of it and why we're called zone Haven is that we really focus on very small neighborhoods or, or zones. And so these zones are smart. They know, uh, the number of people, they know how quick it, how long it's going to take for people to get out of there. They know if there's one, two, five, ten different ways out of there. They know where somebody's closest shelter is. And those zones become a semantic or a common conversation point that makes it easy for everyone to coordinate. It's hard to say everybody north of the ridge, but south to that one road and then east to the reservoir, that's complicated. But if you can just say zones three, four, and five, Everybody knows what that is. And so we were able to get those used in the tent so that when fire, law, utilities, all of those folks using the common semantic language, when they made changes to the zones so that those zones are under order or under warning, that's also translated to the community and, on, and posted on social media. We saw people on next door rooting for their zone to open. Come on, zone 38, right? People really connected with their zone. And so uh, the arc of, of our relationship with the county is to help them build those zones 
and then to help the community know their zone and then build that really tight relationship between the agencies and the community because it takes both, right? I mean, Jonathan will tell you, the law enforcement will tell you, they may not get to your door. They may not be able to knock on your door and tell you to leave. It may be that you've got to get out of there on your own. Well, and I'll tell you, as somebody that knew a little bit about you and a little bit about your technology before the crisis in our area hit, as the crisis was unfolding and I was checking the Cal Fire, Cal Fire Twitter feed, which I also want to get to uh, you with or get to Chief Cox with you on, because I think what you folks did from a communication standpoint to the community, you put on a master class in, in how to communicate with us. But we'll get to that, hopefully. But when I saw Cal Fire tweeting out maps from Zone Haven explaining what you just described, I was like, Oh, shit. Great. They're using literally, to the best of my knowledge, the most leading edge technology to help plan this thing out. And so, Chief Cox, maybe that gets to you. Uh, sort of tell me about how the use of this sort of technology has changed the way you attack a fire, particularly like CZU, where you didn't have very many resources given the size of the fire. You know, I think, Chris, one of the things that kind of some facts were that Charlie didn't give you there is this really is Charlie has kind of brought forward a solution to a problem that maybe a lot of people don't really understand even exists. And that's, there are so many jurisdictions with so many different responsibilities on these large fires that getting everybody onto one platform that says, hey, we all have an interest here, law, fire, fire districts, Cal Fire, what is best for the public is what we need to put forward and operate from as a as a starting point. And that's really what the Zone Haven platform is, is, hey, we're all a lot stronger together if we're on the same page when it comes to looking at how people need where, need to go and how they need to get there when a disaster strikes. So I think that's a, a really important piece is it's cutting through a lot of the hours of grueling decision making that when it happens on the fly is obviously not going to be as effective if as compared to doing it ahead of time on a common platform. So uh, my hat's off to Charlie. I've always said this. He has nailed something that I think people are just starting to realize how important it is in the grand, the grand scheme of disasters. We've been hearing the term reflex time. And we're sh- by using the platform and the common semantics and language, uh, the reflex time to be able to do an evacuation and make a decision is, incre- is much, much shorter. Yeah. Well, and I, I got to believe in a case of the fire here, the CZU fire, where you're dealing with um, dramatic changes in the landscape, even within a quarter mile, because it's a hilly area. Obviously, there's a tremendous amount of uh, forest, underbrush, things along those lines. Fire resources and firefighters may or may not know the area. They're coming in from other parts of the state and over time, other parts of the country. And so understanding that, you know, this road goes to here and that road goes to here and given the wind and given the fire direction that maybe we need to focus on evacuating this place, but not that place and things along those lines. In the absence of technology, I got to believe those decisions are incredibly hard to make. Yeah, they sure are. You know, it's hard to, to make decisions in very extreme circumstances, right? And what we were able to do with Charlie's help is turn on a system that we thought we were six to eight weeks away from still implementing. Um, And, you know, Charlie answered the phone and we said, hey, we need to do it now. We need to use the technology. This is the moment. So was was the CZU fire your beta test of the the Zone Zone Haven software? (laughs) 
I wouldn't. I would not call it a beta test. It was a production test. Be- beta assumes you know that you, you don't really have uh, customers too too deep. But, but a it. first run for the team working on CZU with this technology. Yeah, it, it was where we went from being an academic um, concept, right, where we were pretty confident we we had nailed it, to doing what we call in the Silicon Valley parlance proving market fit. Like we actually had the tools. We had the data and we had the infrastructure that could uh, could support it. You know, there were definitely some hiccups, um, but they were very easy to address. And now our roadmap is clear. We know exactly what these guys need. I, I was personally invited into the tent for the evacuations. I spent a week and a half in Scotts Valley in the tent working with the law enforcement and the firefighters and and the people planning the evacuations. Um, and then after that event, um, that same incident team moved up to the glass fire in Napa and they said, come up here. So I spent a week in the trailer up there. And so we just learned so much about how to help the, the, the communication, both between, within the agencies, uh, across the agencies, and then out to the public. Because that's that's really the key. So let's maybe go dig into the CZU fire a little bit because I think it's incredibly powerful. I remember uh, Chief Cox early on in your press conferences, you guys making it very clear to us, the public, that you had far less than normal resources that you would normally have given all the other fires and given the size of this fire. Uh, less than ten percent is the number that sticks in my head, but take me to the very early days of the CZU fire and sort of walk me through what you're dealing with with the fire and what resources you had to deal with that fire. Yeah, so the the fires really started, uh, you know, we had 12 confirmed, sorry, 27 confirmed fires in our unit between the two counties by the time the day was done on that Sunday. And it, it, on a normal, on a normal fire for 27 fires, we would have had thousands and thousands of resources and on order and and incoming. But because we were just 27 of, you know, hundreds of fires burning across the state, we were literally uh, limited by the fact that we needed to make do with the resources that we had. So we were prioritizing putting out small fires all over the unit. But there were a few of them, basically three larger ones in southern San Mateo County that were just highly inaccessible and burning in areas that were, uh, you know, six feet of duff, skunking around, not doing a lot, but would require a lot of resources, both firefighters, aircraft, hand crews that just weren't available at the time. So we we used more and more local resources, volunteer agencies. We ordered a type three incident management team from the South Bay, and we kept placing orders to Northern California operations, you know, asking for, for more and more resources. But so was all the so were all the other incidents. Santa Clara needed resources. Napa needed resources. Uh, we were all competing for the same finite number of resources that are in the state of California. The really the turning point on the CZU complex was on that Tuesday, if you remember, and that's when we had requested a formal Type One incident management team, and that's when the wind hit it. Basically, those fires in in southern San Mateo County that were very remote in in really inaccessible deep terrain. They really made a hard push to the south. And that was the day that, you know, the the best way to describe it is more acres of this unit burned in 12 hours than have burned in the last 100 years. Um, And that's a a staggering, (laughs) right? We we saw the fire basically consume 45,000 acres in 12 hours. And that, um, 
that in a old growth redwood area, that along a coastal range, that along an area that, that doesn't have a return interval for fire that's as, uh, that's as low as other parts of the state was, was fairly unprecedented. And Chief, I hate to interrupt you, but if I remember that timing right, and I, I may have it off, but was that at the time where your ability to use air assets to drop the ocean on the fire had, had, had diminished and you weren't being able to use much power from the air as well? Yeah, so the the kind of the story on the aircraft of this fire was really the fact that we were limited by visibility. So as the wind pushed the fire, we couldn't get to the head because of the visibility of the of the fire. Um, and nor would nor would a helicopter on a forty thousand acre fire a helicopter is going to have minimal impact. Um, but it quickly turned us to one of those situations um, like the Tubbs fire or the Kincaid fire where we quickly went from a tactical mindset to a strategic, how are we going to get all these people out? Right. And that was a very quick change that happened on that Tuesday too. We have, we have resources on order, but now let's focus on how do we get people out? And that's when the real conversation started with law enforcement. So just so I'm clear at that stage of the game, a few days into the fire, given the conditions, the size of the fire, and the fact that you had called the cavalry and it wasn't coming, that is to say there weren't enough resources and you were operating it less, is that right, less than 10% of what you would normally have had? Yeah, you know, I think we were up to, I think, 350 on that Tuesday, 350 um, personnel assigned on that Tuesday when we had that very large progression to the south. And that was the day that we, we, we really made that transition to getting people out of the way. And that's because you decided we can't fight this fire. We got to get people out. Is that right? Exactly. Yep. And that's when we really leaned on Charlie and his team. You know, I was at the, the incident base in, in Felton. And to give you an idea of how the, the platform worked, I was talking to my counterpart in San Mateo County, uh, at the sheriff's office and the county manager's office. And we were all looking at the same map online and we were saying, yep. Yep, I agree with that. Yep, those are the areas we need to evacuate. And it was that quick and that simple. I have to say, had we not planned for the zone um, evacuations in San Mateo County, I think we'd have a much different conversation right now about how we could do evacuations better in this county. So the, the value for us in the whole platform itself was not necessarily being able to change the color and tell people to get out, which was helpful, but it was all that pre-planning and all those conversations that went in ahead of time that said, yes, that's the zone that we were planning on if we had a fire in this area or if it was progressing in this way. Um, so it was a little bit of dumb luck planning ahead of time this year, um, but it also reaffirmed our theory that you have to have plans for individual communities to get them out. Because when that moment comes from tactical decision making to strategic decision making, there's no time to draw those plans up. It has to happen now. And we, we were lucky. We were lucky. We had Santa Cruz, San Mateo, and portions of Santa Clara. The zones had already been built and had already been accepted by the the agencies. So the fact that those were all like available, coordination across all three counties could happen. Yes, and I remember, as somebody who consumed virtually every minute of uh, your twice daily press conference for the better part of two weeks, there was a point in the very beginning where we detected 
I, I almost want to say fear in some of you know the guy's eyes because when you said we don't have we have less than ten percent the resources that we normally would, and I remember when you were at three hundred something uh, people, and I remember how uh, relieved we were when you announced it. You'd gone over five hundred people. We're like, okay, well at least they're getting some help. Right. But then shortly thereafter, it started to. If we were reading the tea leaves in the press conferences, it started to get clear that the combination of, of getting your handle on this thing, having real visibility and having more resources came in, there seemed like there was a moment in, the, in your public communications where all of you as the leadership on the crisis had a plan and were very confident and very structured approaches to uh, getting people out were starting to emerge. But I'd be curious, take me into those sort of those moments early on. Yeah. That's a great question. And I will as much as I can remember, because I know a lot of it's a blur from not sleeping very much for a long time. But there were points where we wanted to reach out through the camera and give you guys all coffees. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think there was a couple key moments. One was we uh, on that Tuesday evening after we had done the, the, the first round of mass evacuations is a conversation with the incident commander, Billy C., Chief Larkin and myself, um, as well as Chris Clark from the sheriff's office, and really coming to the conclusion that, okay, we have to go, our evacuations must have to go way beyond Boulder Creek. We need to go all the way down into Felton. We need to go all the way down into Scotts Valley. And this thing has the potential based on the resources we have to go to Santa Cruz, to go to Highway 17, to go to Highway 280 and Woodside, um, to go up to Half Moon Bay. And I think for me, I, I'll remember that conversation because I was eating a boxed dinner from I don't know how, ma how many hours old. And it, that line was drawn out, that conclusion was made, and it was really a, a silent coming to terms with, okay, this has the potential to go much, much bigger than what we're thinking right now. So that was probably what you detected in the next press conference when we came out and said, look, we're, we're going to have to do a lot more as far as getting people out of the way. Um, based on the resources we have, this thing has the potential to do a lot more damage. That's one of my memories that, that I can think of from the beginning hours. Well, and we as the public were reading it right because, and, and I think you guys did a legendary job at transparency, but I think you guys were reading the situation, what well, we were reading you right then, in that it seemed like you got to this decision point where it was like, holy shit, we may have to, it's not just going to be a few smaller mountain communities, it's going to be major communities in the mountains, it's going to be Scotts Valley, and I'll never forget, as it was, as the fire was coming to the university in Santa Cruz, we heard rumors in town that you guys were less than 12 hours away from beginning an evacuation of the west side of Santa Cruz. And it was almost as if you could feel the entire region, you know, shitting itself as as you guys were starting to communicate, hey, wait a minute, this thing might do something that we've never really seen a fire do here in modern times. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think, you know, we're in those moments, we're very kind of methodical and all about business, about thinking, how do we get people out? we try not to get caught up in the emotional aspect of this. This is a big deal for a community or for an individual or for a family or for college students, whatever it might be. Um, that comes a little bit later when we kind of come to terms with what, with what we've done. But at that point, you know, based on what we had seen that fire do and based on the resources we had, um, we, we had to think big and we had to prime the public for, Hey, this thing could get a lot worse before it gets a lot better. And so there's lots to go to in this, but maybe start with 
How did you do the job you did from a communications point of view where it felt like as a member of the public, you guys were being radically transparent, but at the same time with yourself leading those communication sessions and with virtually every single leader that you put up there. And, and my personal favorite was Billy C's. Maybe we'll get to him in a second. I, I thought, is he the reincarnation of John Wayne or who is this guy? Um, but we'll, we'll, we'll get to my, my love of chiefs in a second, but it just seemed like each and every one of you, whether it was from leadership from the sheriff's department or the various fire agencies. And of course yourself as the one leading those communications that at one hand you weren't bullshitting us at all. We got, and we were scared and we really were. Uh, but at the same time you communicated comfort in that you were on it. You had a plan you talked about why and how you do evacuations. You talk about what you were doing with the fire. And so can you sort of share with me how, this radical transparency and how you communicate the truth, but not freak people out at the same time? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think, you know, I've always said as someone who has been very passionate about communications in our agency is we have two priorities on a, on a disaster. One is, is mitigating the disaster. And the other one is communicating to the public how and what we're doing when we're mitigating that disaster. And I've said it before, they are both equally as important. Um, because if you can't communicate properly with the people who are being effective, there are so many avenues of issues that, that have come out. And we've seen that over and over again over the years across California. So I think very early on, Chief Larkin, who's the, the, the fire administrator for the area, was very kind of firm in his expectation that we were going to be very transparent and we were going to communicate with everybody to get out the information. And I do think um, there was a few keys to that. We had a very good leadership team from all the agencies that were involved. We got a little lucky there. It's not always that kind of symbiotic when it, when it comes to communicating. So that helped. And then also we had a extremely, extremely good social media PIO for our organization and she comes from a media background. And I think bringing in someone from the media to your agency as a public agency who knows what needs to be communicated uh, was probably one of the single biggest takeaways for us to say, yep, that was a key, a key person in the organization. But as far as the content goes, you know, I think there's a couple issues going on. One is this was, you know, some of the people who are on that stage's area where they live. You know, Chief Larkin, for example, lives in Scotts Valley. Chris Clark is obviously local to, to Santa Cruz. There was no hiding the truth here. This was completely, this is what we're doing and this is our plan. Whether it works or not, the judgment can come later. But really just saying to people, this is what we're doing. And also putting in there that, hey, we do this in other parts of the state every year. And this is why we think this plan is going to work because we're not used to large fires in this area. So those were definitely two concurrent messages that we were trying to push out there. I have to say the compliance that we saw from a majority of the fire area for people getting out and being supportive was impressive. And I also know that asking people to leave their homes potentially for the last time uh, is something that we have to be very compassionate about. And people who decide to stay and get defensive about their homes, we have to also be compassionate about. So. I think those are the kind of the, the, the cornerstones we stood on was, hey, we got to be transparent. But at the end of the day, we have to be human. We have to understand that this is people acting in a disaster. It's not always this way, though, right? There are other events that happened even this year and in past years where the communication has been much more fragmented or 
the story hasn't been as clear. Yeah. And, you know, this was the first time we've ever done twice daily press conferences. We've, you know, in the past, we usually do one, maybe around one o'clock, maybe about three o'clock. This kind of happened by happenstance. We had one scheduled for early morning for an update, and then we did one in the evening. And then the media asked, hey, are you guys going to do another one tomorrow morning? And so we got into this rhythm kind of by happenstance. We were planning on just doing one, but the feedback we were getting was, hey, these are really important for us because we were having a press conference before everything started and then after everything ended for the day. Um, and, I, and, I, and I, for one, as a takeaway from this incident, will always be an advocate, especially in populated areas, to follow that model at least twice a day, communicate out to the public. I can't thank you enough for not just the job that you did, which, of course, it was incredible, saving uh, so many lives and countless tens of millions of dollars. And never mind, you know, everybody who lives in this region, you know, when, when we found the fire had gone to Big Basin Way and had destroyed that beautiful campground and, and all that. And, and the, of course, the 2000 year old redwoods that we all love so much. It's also painful. But when you guys on Twitter, on Facebook, you set up your own Twitter handle specific to our fire and we could watch you real time. We said, my wife and I sat there in bed in the morning. We used to wallet. We, my wife used to say, Hey, our show's on, and, you know, and in the morning we'd have breakfast with you. And in the evening we'd have, we'd have dinner with you, but our show's on and we would sit there and whether it was coffee and cereal in the morning or whatever it was with a glass of wine at night, you gave us so much comfort by telling us exactly what was going on, who was being impacted, and so forth and so on. And when you're sitting there evaluating, do we or don't we have to leave? We had felt like we wanted to leave before an evacuation. So our, our thinking was, well, if you're going to start evacuating the college, then we need to make plans to evacuate because it's going to hit Santa Cruz. So we were getting on the front end of that. Um, we had family in San Jose on another fire, which got close to their house. We had evacuated them to our house in Santa Cruz. We had family in the Santa Cruz mountains, which we evacuated with their pets and their kids and their hens and their parrots and their parakeets and their dogs and their cats. I felt like fucking Noah, uh, in the ark, but we had all these people, but then we were getting afraid that we were going to have to evacuate all of Santa Cruz. We, 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 we rented a place in San Luis Obispo, Obispo at, at Crick great expense and we were going to move the entire they said they were pet friendly we we're like well we're going to find out how pet friendly they are when we get there <laughs> but like this was the level of panic in the community and so that that you having your on quote unquote our, our, our show uh twice a day allowed us to literally game this out in 12 hour increments in terms of how it was going to affect our lives and and our loved ones in real time with you it was an incredible public service yeah yeah that's good to hear it i you know, I've, I've heard that from a few people. I appreciate the, the feedback on it. One of the key people in that whole organization of updates was uh, Mark Brunton on the operations side. And it's not always that we bring in an operations person into a press conference because they obviously have other things to focus on. But of all the people standing up on that stage, the one person people want to hear from is Mark Brunton because he actually knows what the fire is doing out there. And I think, you know, my hat's off to Mark. I mean, he's a natural speaker, which is helpful, um, but it's also a, a big inconvenience to him because he's focused on operations to twice daily being early and late, early and late. 
But at the end of the day, it's what's the right thing for the public to hear. It's important that they get that message from the person who's in charge of that. Because you're right, it, the, the impacts and the actions that people take based on that information can make some some big difference in people's lives. Now, there's so much I think we can learn from you, but maybe if we can go to when you're faced with a crisis like this that is exploding literally so quickly, and one of the other things I'm continu- continuously in awe of what you folks do is how many agencies were at work towards the kind of the keep the high the high point of of resources working on this uh, on this crisis. Yeah, so I don't I don't know the exact number of agencies we had on there. It was hundreds, though. You know, you look at all the fire, law enforcement agencies, mutual aid. Uh, I think at our peak, we had seven unified command agencies between law and fire agencies in the two counties who had jurisdictional authority over the fire itself. And that really is, you know, one of the greatest things we have in California that people may not have heard of is called the incident command system. Um, And it really is this adaptable, flexible, expandable, contractable framework for allowing everybody to fit in and work together and get something done based on common language, a common planning cycle, a common mapping, common communications. But man, it's it's awe-inspiring if people were to see the backside of it to get all of these different agencies to get under one tent into one base camp all get paid, all get fed, all get slept, all get tooled, all be safe. It really is a testament to what California has. Unfortunately, because of how often we have to react to disasters, to, to fires, to, to floods, to whatever it might be, but it it, it works. As a, uh, a a layman here, I I was able to go to four of these fires this year and actually be in the tent with with these guys, and uh, the operation was huge. It's it's like a giant military camp. Every event had their situation room, every event, and they're similar, right? And there's the guy who's leading the map, and he's done it at this event, he's done it at the event before. There's people, it's, it's, it's a huge community that, that comes together and scales up. Um, they're processing thousands of firefighters coming through to get their hoses, to get their equipment, to get their 24-hour food packs, to know where they're supposed to go onto the fire. I mean, it, I was blown away at the quality and the, the structure of that from getting printers for printing maps to the tents, to the yurts, to the, um, to the people fixing the radios, to the guys who put the tires on the trucks, right? I mean, it's huge. And it, and it was a cookie cutter that really seemed to work well. And how many people at the peak were working on the CZU fire? I think we got up to about 2,700 people, I think was our peak uh, staffing on it. And so how do you bring together like... So there's the technical part, which is fascinating. And, and then there's the, the human part of the leadership part. When mm. 2,700 people, the vast majority of whom may not have worked together and some have and some haven't and some know each other and some don't. And some of them are better managers and leaders and some of them are shitty managers and leaders and some of them expect things one way and some of them, you know, and egos are always like how, how from a management and leadership perspective, you and the rest of the leadership team put together such a multi-agent, multidisciplinary team that at least from the perspective of somebody in the public, you made it look like this was a, another day at the office. Yeah. So I think there's a few key kind of criteria for success on the, the management of large incidents. One is that everything is derived from that unified incident command team 
and the leader's intent that they express. So Billy C., who was the leader of the leaders, was really that spokesperson for all the commanders to say, this is our intent. This is what we want to do. And there's two sets of objectives that are built, and that's the management objectives, how they want to manage this fire. They want to be, you know, cost commensurate with risk, keep people informed, um, not harm anybody. And then there's the kind of operational objectives, which is keep the fire north of this, south of this, west of that. So those are the two big things. You have an, an operational objective, you have a management objective, and then you have leader's intent that comes from that unified incident command group. But the big key to all of this is there's only one operations section chief in charge of operations. And that's a really important clarifying point. There's only one Mark Brunton. Because if you have more than one Mark Brunton, that's when things start to do this. Um, you can have the instant commanders up here come to a conclusion, but it's that key down, that one ops person who is the kingpin or the linchpin in making sure that things don't go sideways operationally. I try to put it in a business context. Is the incident command like a board of directors almost? And Mark is like the field general, that is to say the CEO in the field executing the strategy of incident command. Would that be a way to think about it? Yep, that's a really good way to think about it. And so, and and then Chief C's, he was in the board of directors, yes? Or is he the chairman of the board? Yeah, he's, really the, he's the chairman of the board, right? I think John Wayne wants to be Billy C's when he grows up. <laughs> <laughs> is he, is he, I just got to ask you, is he as cool in person as he seems on TV or at oh, least Twitter? Yeah. yeah, Billy is. Billy is, is just one of the best. And, um, you know, we were lucky to have him as the... He brings his 53-person incident management team in, um, and he's just a natural leader. He, I, I, in the tent and I, and in conversations and in situations, both jurisdictionally and politically, he, he's a master of what he does. And I think you know what he pulled off here and what he managed and led is is really a testament to who he is because he's he's a class act. And, and look, I, I keep saying it, but I, I just have to watching all of you every day. It was so obvious that dynamic was there. It was so obvious how much you respected Mark. And it was so obvious that Chief C's, you know, it was hard to tell because you guys all have chief in your title. You're all chiefs of something, right? Yeah. But it's, it's it, what you're describing became clear watching the dynamic. Mm, yeah. Right. It became clear that you were the guy, you were sort of the glue pulling it all together and communicating it to the public. It became clear that Mark felt like a field general. And it became clear that Billy Sees was more than likely the chairman of the board, the old Yoda, or I forget the name. Do you remember that old movie City Slickers with Billy Crystal, <laughs> where that old cowboy looks up and goes, ah, shit bigger than you, right? It's sort of <laughs> yeah. Chief Sees sort of sees, seemed like a little bit like that kind of a character. <laughs> yeah. Well, what's interesting is a couple of times Billy said, man, John, I, I, I just don't know if I have anything to say. Like, I don't think I need to say anything. And, and <laughs> both times. We let Billy didn't speak. I don't know if you noticed one on one press conference. Billy didn't speak, and the reaction that we got from the community was like you would have thought we had you know fired him. He just the outcry was huge, uh, and I came back to him on that night and I said, "Hey, Billy, you don't have a choice in this. You're speaking," and <laughs> he reluctantly did. <laughs> the other thing, and I, I I don't want to put you too much on the spot, but 
you guys all sort of became sex symbols, I think, around Santa Cruz. I know that um, my wife was pretty excited to hear I was going to be talking to you, and she also wanted to know if you if you could introduce me to uh, Chris Clark because she wants to meet him too. So you 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 big sexy firemen and 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 cops are uh, not only were you making the men comfortable, but I think you were at least entertaining some of the women on a different dimension. Maybe I could put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe some of the men, for all that matter. <laughs> A man in uniform. <laughs> um, and so uh, here's one of the things I'm concerned about in all seriousness. I'm concerned about the lack of resourcing we have um, in our state to deal with these things. Uh, and I, I know we don't want to get overly political, but I remember when our current governor came in two years ago, we were experiencing quote unquote, the worst fire year ever. And it seems like this year has surpassed that. And I found myself screaming at my computer and screaming at my television saying, where's the cavalry? Where's the national guard? Where's the actual army themselves? Because unless I'm wrong, the army has firefighting resources and capabilities. And I know typically we don't deploy the army inside the United States, but in this case, you know, California was, Northern California was on fire. And of course it's hit Southern California and so forth. And so as somebody who feels like I pay a lot of money in tax, but more importantly, not only is it about California, I thought about, about all of you and your team asking to fight this fire with less than 10% of the resources that are required to fight this fire. And I couldn't help but get uh, angry and frustrated um, about the resourcing that you have. And so can you sort of walk me through where we are around, if you will, staffing up and resourcing up to deal with this new reality in California? Yeah, I, you know, it's a great question. And I think a couple things, you know, um, over the last three years, we have fortunately built our ranks up in is Cal Fire. So we have basically 343 uh, Cal Fire engines across the state, across 21 units. Uh, over the last 18 months, 13 additional year-round fire engines have been funded and put into the system. Um, and actually this year, we put in uh, a significant number of augmented additional firefighters into place across the state to bolster our staffing on our fire engines. So there are there are things happening. That as a layman, that doesn't sound like anywhere near enough. Right. Like where where is the quadrupling of the size of right. Cal Fire? Or how do you scale it? How do you scale? How do you, I mean it, you only need this for two months a year? How, how do you how do you build something that can just ramp up and then go back to a baseline? Yeah, definitely. And I think we saw that this year, right? Like the number of volunteer organizations that stepped up in the moment to assist, the number of volunteers that came in to assist. Um, really, for me, shed some light on, wow, there, there is a, a, a passion out there for people to actually do something about this in those moments. Um, because it is a balancing act, right? 90% of the year, we don't need a lot of these resources. But then 10% of the year, we need tr you know, triple the amount. Um, and where do you find that balance? Have you thought about surge pricing, maybe? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't help myself. <laughs> Charlie could, I'm sure, help you build that. Yeah, we'll, those, figure those that are, we'll figure that out. Those guys yeah. are geniuses at Zone Haven. <laughs> yeah. I, I do think there are some some other things that are in the pipeline that should help. Um, our our large air tanker fleet should be coming online in the next few years, which is the C, the seven C one thirties that we acquired from the feds. 
um, that you know give us a, a additional air resources. The 13 new Black Hawk helicopters that are going to be joining the, the fleet. But at the end of the day, you know, we have a short-term problem on our hands, which is how do we deal with these large damaging fires? And we got a long-term problem on our hands, which is how do we deal with the fact that we have all of these fires occurring? And those are two completely different trajectories. One is very much looking at holistically how we live, where we build, what we do to the land, how we manage it, um, reintroducing fire back into the, uh, to the, to the environment. That is all long-term, big-picture stuff that is equally as important as the immediate get firefighters on the ground out to the field. So that I, I've said it all along. This is California's issue. This is the issue of the moment that's not going away. And this is really why there is so much focus on both the near-term and the long-term as far as getting us out of this predicament. And I'll say, there is no silver bullet. And I've, I, I think that's a really important thing for everyone to recognize. There is no single fire engine. There is no single vegetation management project. There is no single aircraft that's going to fix this problem. It's going to take a lot of different components in California to get us past both the immediate and the long-term problem. So here's something that angered me, and you tell me if my anger is misplaced or not. When our current governor came in, I did not hear the following. We are going to triple the size of Cal Fire in the next 12 months. We're raising a special bond to pay for it. We're setting up a council of the best minds in the private sector and the public sector, environmentalists, forest protection people, the best minds in California across every dimension, short-term and long-term. And I'm tasking this, this committee to come back with a short-term plan of how we deal with this year and a long-term plan with how we do with it next year to, to get the innovation of Silicon Valley working on this. So there's more companies like Zonehaven out there and there's forward-leaning technologies on how to fight the fire itself, as well as software and technology to help in the field and, and all the best minds. Did that happen and I missed it? There was a, yeah, so I, I will say there was a request for innovation, an RFI that came out from from um, Sacramento that produced a couple pieces of technology, one being called TechnoSilva, which is a fire modeling uh, software that our command centers are now implementing. There was the 45-day projects that the governor's office implemented last year, which was those 35 priority projects. Um, there have also been some pretty substantial gains on uh, reintroducing fire as part of the kind of land stewardship program with other agencies, especially in the Sierras, to reintroduce fire and increase the number of acres um, that we that we manage. So those things are occurring. That's that's code for controlled burns, yes. Yeah, for controlled burns and reintroducing fire back into the to the to the ecosystem. So those things are all happening, um, and I think you know I think we'll see more and more of that as 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 the time goes on. Because you're you're correct in the sense that the calls that I get every day from the, the public and and people in the community is ninety nine percent of the time related to the fire danger and the fire risk and what they're feeling or what they're experiencing. Well, and I also think about the you know we sort of have seen this with COVID nineteen right when the virus was first exploding in places like Seattle and New York. There was the horror we all had for for the individual citizens who were being affected by it and dying, of course. But then quickly thereafter, we as the public realized, oh, my God, 
you know, the frontline healthcare workers are, are exposed to this danger as well, and they are not being resourced properly and therefore being put in more danger. And as the CZU fire was going, my, the level of, I'll just say the right word because it's how I felt, anger towards not only the government's inability to protect us as citizens and, and the country and, and the state and this beautiful landscape we all love, but here you are, you guys are breathing that air all day, every day. That's having an impact on your lungs. You guys are fighting in incredible, incredibly long shifts with, I don't know, you tell me 40, 50, 60 pounds of gear on, uh, you know, with one hand. So we're asking you to do this with very little support. And so whether it's, whether it's doing the right thing for the community and the people, or frankly, enabling uh, Cal Fire and all the other agencies to save our asses, I think we failed on both of those fronts. But uh, am I being uh, overly judgmental here, Chief? <laughs> so I will say this. I, I would say that, you know, in my career, you know, the last 18 years, uh, I have never seen the amount of support and attention given to Cal Fire or our agency uh, at a state level. I think over the last three years, we've seen tremendous support for our agency and for the fire problem. Um, so I, I do think I, I do think we're seeing a lot of support, a lot of awareness and a lot of resources um, coming to, to help. You know, even the fact that we now have pre-positioned resources of local government fire apparatus is something we never saw a few years ago that, that's been extremely helpful. Um, so I do think, you know, there has been um, kind of palatable and documented real substantial increases for us across the state. I will kind of come back to where we started in the sense that there's a couple big dynamics here. One is the climactic issue. The temperatures are getting hotter. You know, the nights are warmer than ever. The vegetation's not drying out, is drying out. The fog's not coming in. Um, that is one part of the problem. The other part of the problem is we have 40 million people in California. Uh, we live in very kind of um, wildland prone areas. Um, we uh, have infrastructure in those areas um, and we our human activity occurs in those areas. And not to forget that we've suppressed a lot of our fires for the last hundred years. So we have a lot of fuel loading in those areas as well. And I think the kind of best way to describe it is you take the human Im impacts, you take the climactic impacts and you multiply them right now. And that is what we're getting. We're getting these larger fires, these more destructive fires, the more frequent fires. And that trend is kind of going like this. So I get it. Everyone really wants to solve it now and, and thinks we can do more. Um, I will, though, uh, say that more has been done over the last three years for for and with us uh, as a fire agency. Um, that gives me a lot of hope that, you know, uh, as a resident of this state, I think we will continue to lead solving the immediate problem, but then also kind of addressing the long term issue. Uh, because, you know, you're you're one of millions who understands just kind of how important this is to our, our well-being and, and, and state of mind. Well, I could tell you, and I'm just one guy, but uh, I'm going to do my best to make it the number one issue in the next election cycle in California. <laughs> but that that's probably a topic for a different day. Charlie, one of the things, you know, I was so inspired when I first met you and your team because I don't know. And again, I'm not an expert on the fire service or any of this stuff, but it strikes me that there's sort of, if we were to draw a bubble chart and think about, you know, big data, the cloud, uh, now what we call data to everything, the internet of things. And the fact that, you know, I like to play a cocktail party game with my friends called, 
name me something that's not going to get connected to the internet. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> and then of course there's all this weather data and topology data and population data that you have. Where, where are housing developments and where do people live? And is there some kind of a chemical plant somewhere and so forth and so on? I mean, there's just this, you know, uh, our, our dear friends at Splunk like to say every problem is a data problem and sort of bringing all this kind of data through the cloud, through mobile technologies together. Um, can you sort of share with me what the technology enabled firefighting environment of the next couple of years of the near term future can look like here? So I'm going to, I'm going to pivot it a little bit to uh, not to be focused on the firefighting, right? There's a lot of people that are really focused on what we would call incident command or where are you going to lay down the, um, the retardant or where are you going to pick up water and move that, right? But that's a very, very well defined, um, problem. There's still technology that can be brought into that space. And being in the tent, we saw that there's satellites that are providing more real time. They're working with the United States Air Force who's flying over them um, using you know high resolution to figure out where the fires are actually located in the in the operations center so that stuff is is going you know, in the right direction a place that is really in need of the help is the evacuations and getting people out of the out of the way so Jonathan and you were talking about um, how do we mitigate how do we deal with the, the climate stuff you know well there's always this, the concept of um, think globally, act locally, right? And you've got to act locally in order to solve that. So we're focused on very small community units. And so we want to bring that type of information, the information about fuel loads, the information about drought, the information about where things have or haven't burned down to the local level. So if at each zone, people start to take ownership of the mitigations and of the protections of potentially widening the roads or adding an additional way to get out, that's where the real value is going to come in. So we can bridge that gap that you guys were talking about of how do we deal with California, the climate issues and all of this stuff. How can we bring that to you in your neighborhood, right? Um, and then flip it. If you can see in the future, very near future, and we actually did it at some of these fires, being able to have the, the guy who shows up at the fire, um, the first person on the scene say, I see it, it's over here, or I've got a detection, be able to quickly run a, a series of simulations and then quickly assess whether that thing is going to be big and what direction it's going to go in. And then right there from that, that device say, let's start the evacuation now. We don't need to bring in the tents. We don't need to wait three hours for other people. We can actually start that communication immediately. Um, and so that's where we're going to start to really get that reflex time down from many, many hours to potentially minutes, which could save, you know, save lives. So by doing the, the planning and the hyper-local mitigations, we can start to really save property and help people learn how to get out. Um, and then by getting it into the hands of the, the, the law and fire, we can actually get people out more quickly. So that's, that's what we see uh, landing here. Reflex time is, is really what you're focusing on. Is that right? We're, well, we're focusing on reflex time for the agencies, but, but, but that reflex time com comes with pre-planning. And the pre-planning can also include mitigation. 
That's the other key piece, right? When you pre-plan, it's not just where do I put my police and my law? Where am I going to send people during an evacuation? You could say, well, that corridor is covered in eucalyptus. We don't want to send people down that road until that's been mitigated. Or that's a two-lane road during an evacuation. We need to make it a one-lane road, two lanes going out, right? Or let's let's take that dirt road that it drops people into the other neighborhood and let's actually gra- make it gravel and we'll put a gate there and then we'll make you know, those are the mitigations that can happen and they start to be exposed during the pre-planning you get those agencies together you get the people to work with the agencies and you start to identify and some of those mitigations are super super simple you know staging some water in that area let's just put some bladders up on the hill so that there's water people can use like those are those are the things that can be done beforehand. And right now, a lot of that gets done you know, ad hoc as the events happen. So if I maybe try to synthesize this in my, uh, with the few brain cells I have left, you folks have essentially done a Google Maps on steroids in, in getting to know these areas, these zones, as you build them out. And you have all this detail about where homes are and what the topology is like. And is it a one lane road or a two lane road, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. As a crisis is unfolding, like the one we just experienced, you're able to take that as is data and correlate it with how the fire's behaving, uh, how the weather's been of late, where the fire's likely to go. And then as a result of all of that, there's a predictive capability of this that says, well, then based on all of that, where the fire is, where the wind is, where the moisture is, where the rain is or not in our case, uh, and where all the people are and how the roads work, et cetera, et cetera, and a a whole bunch of other factors. But in a real-time basis, take that data and and allow Chief Cox and the rest of the team to make smart, forward-leaning decisions about what to do and in what sequence. And in a situation like we had with CZU, that literally translates into lives because if they decide to go here versus there and the fire didn't move the way they thought it would move, and maybe they would have known that with better data and more real-time information, but because they didn't have it, they deployed their their scarce resources in a way that they, they would be better served in this other area. That's really the big trade-off, is it not? Am I getting this? Totally, and I'm sure Jonathan can can, can chime in, but the, the, you know, the trade-off is both accuracy and time. Like how much information can I have and how quickly can I make a decision that is has a high probability of being correct, right? Um, and we saw with the CZU complex, we went from one zone on, I think, the 17th or the 18th to 134 zones shut within five days, right? Literally within five days. And that Tuesday, Wednesday, they, we had nuts. five between those two days. There was something like eight or nine press releases that went out because so quickly they started to understand holy sh- holy excuse me um that, that, that <laughs> you can say anything you want around me <laughs> okay. they, um, you know so it was oh we're just going to do this part of boulder creek no oh my god this thing the winds are really picking up let's add the rest of boulder creek and felton right like it's just like it moved so quickly and then when you look at the satellite image and you see where the fire went they made the right decision Right. I mean, it moved. So the 12, those 12 hours, you know, and for, for these guys to be able to predict that and to have the right information to be able to make those decisions, that's only going to get better. So the way, the way we look at it is for the stuff that we're doing and for the fire, uh, folks and, and law, the, the technology winds are at our back. We've got satellite imagery. We've got satellite fire detection. So let's say we're getting fire detections on the one, uh, every kilometer, right? 
in a couple of years, it'll be every half kilometer and a couple more years. So that stuff is just getting, there's more data. We're, we're able to use machine learning and AI to start processing that. We're able to, you know, look at detections. We're, all of that stuff is kind of moving in, in the right direction. The hard thing is how do you get that into the hands of fire and law in a way that, you know, they can, you know, with gloves on, use it. Right. It's not, you know, it's it can't be a super um, complex tool with 40 drop down boxes and and it requires five people to help operate it. You know, it needs to be something that I can bring it up. It's going to do this one thing well and and I can execute what I need. It's called firefighter proof, Charlie. Firefighter proof. I wasn't going to say that. I wasn't going to say that. I've heard a variety of terms. Some of them are not as uh, as friendly as that. <laughs> But would I be right? It, it take a simple example. I, I, I had never, um, at this level of deep appreciation, understood how, when, and where putting the fire. And maybe this makes me an idiot. Putting the fire line is, and that that you folks are going in with bulldozers. You're literally building trenches so that if and when the fire gets to that location, it doesn't have any more fuel and it doesn't keep moving into the next town, or in this case, in jumping a highway 17 from one side of the fire to the other or what have you. And so does this kind of real time data, Jonathan, help you literally say, Hey, focus on the fire line here, not there, or, or other sorts of resource, de resource deployment questions. Yeah. I, I, you know, I would say that it's not as aimed at tactical decisions such as where to put a line in or what roads to hold. Um, I think it's a little bit higher, higher level than that. And I think, maybe where Charlie was going is everyone, and this comes from a lot of recent disasters, everyone in a disaster has their own information needs and none of them are identical, right? I need certain information as the fire department. Chris Clark needs certain information as law. You as the public, Chris, needs certain pieces of information. The media needs information. The dispatch center needs information. And one thing that, that Zone Haven and Charlie has, has kind of built fundamentally is how do we present this so that everybody has one place to go that gets their information needs met in that moment. And for us, that is information on where and how this fire is going to progress based on the model, right? For Chris Clark, it's what roads and intersections do I need to close to make sure that I have officers at? For the public, it's is my zone under an order or a warning? Um, for the dispatch centers, it's when someone calls 911, is that zone under evacuation? And, and what they figured out is wow, there's got to be one centralized platform for this that everyone goes to that can get their information needs met. Because when we call for an evacuation here, it's no good navel-gazing the map that we have in front of us when the public is the one who really needs to know that. And that is the, the, the really the critical time that we're taking out of all of this is the, the moment from drawing a map on a, on a table to making sure that Chris in Santa Cruz sees this map uh, and gets the information that that he needs with his family, um, and that's one thing that uh, that I think is key to all of this is making sure everyone has that democratized information that everyone is looking at the same map, both from the first responder side and the public side, um, and and getting their information needs. I'll add one piece to that, and that that is that is a great start. The other piece that's really kind of the icing on the cake with what this platform has done is they've said okay, this is good, but there's all these different desperate systems in, in the works. There's Code Red, there's SMC Alerts, there's Nixo, there's Twitter, there's email. 
how do we now become the hub to integrate with all the existing kind of infrastructures that are out there and, and kind of not connected to make it even more um, kind of, of a powerful argument to bring everyone together? So, you know, I, I for one, am someone who's worked with Charlie since the beginning of this in San Mateo County. Uh, and as someone who's been in that tent and had some very long nights of, 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 of decision-making, cannot stress enough, this is probably one of the single most important pieces of technology for a disaster because it really is impactful on making people safe. Well, and like I said earlier, seeing your communications folks tweeting out those Zone Haven maps, I understood what it was that you were actually sharing with us you know, part of the screens and, and dashboards and mapping and so forth that you were using to make those decisions. It's like, and so it gave a lot of comfort, a lot of transparency and, and, and is incredibly powerful. Now I do have to ask you, I know we're running out of time. I do have to ask you one of, there were, there were a few feel good stories that emerged broadly. I mean, the way the public responded to help People who were displaced was incredible, you know, the food and all that stuff. Uh, of course, uh, so I wanted to ask you, did you feel all the signs and the cheering? And does all that help when a local community is just like bowing down, b- thanking you and saying we're not worthy every day? Do, do you guys feel that in the heat of battle? hundred percent. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, I've said all along that nothing is more powerful to a firefighter who's coming off the line is tired and missing their family and been away from home for a month than to drive down back to base camp before they get a meal that there's a kid holding a sign that says, thank you for what you do. Or, you know, every time we'd get letters that came to base camp, we would just put them in the windshield wipers of the engines in the parking lot to get those notes. And that is, you know, beyond anything else, cookies, gift certificates, all that stuff. Nothing is more powerful than the written word to a firefighter without the field. That's so great. And then the other sort of bad news that turned into a feel-good story, of course, uh, and if my memory's right, it became a national story. One of the firefighters had um, his wallet stolen from uh, one of your engines. Am I remembering this right? Yeah, so it was one of the uh, one of the firefighters up in um, I think the operations section was in his pickup, and when he was out on the fire line, had someone steal his wallet. Yeah. And um, how do you remember the public's response to that? <laughs> well, as a communicator, I thought we had a problem because we now had to deal with you know what we call an incident within an incident from a communications perspective, and making sure we didn't um, have too much of a snowball effect going on, but. Uh, with that, it was all amazing intent from people just kind of rising up and saying, whoa, this is not us. This is not OK. This has to end. Um, and the fact that, you know, the sheriff's office was able to make an arrest and, and get that information, and credit card and, and, and wallet back, I think, satisfied a lot of people. But but my gosh, I mean, you went online after that happened and uh, that there was no uh, mincing the words about what people thought of what just happened <laughs> on the fire line. Well, and and I think you did a good job of saying, you know, this firefighter and his family are going to be fine. But I think at that moment, had a GoFundMe gone up, that firefighter would have retired with $200 million. (laughs) There was such an outpouring from the community. And I swear to God, it felt like, of course, I'm exaggerating, but it felt like the entire community cheered when... uh, uh, the sheriff's department posted on Facebook that the dirty bastard who stole a firefighter's wallet had been caught. <laughs> yeah, 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 I remember that. <laughs> well, gentlemen, is there anything else you'd like to touch on before we wrap? 
Yeah, the only the only thing I'd like to, to kind of end with, Chris, and I think this is kind of a, a warning, not a warning sign, but I think for other people in California who may be listening to this, is just you know we didn't think it would happen here. We didn't think this this scale and size and scope and um, kind of level of destruction would happen right here on the coast in the redwoods. Um, and I think it is an unfortunate sign of how vulnerable we are. And just, you know, thinking about that, wherever they, the people may live, as, as far as the, the natural processes that we're seeing occur right now. And I'll, I, I will throw one thing in here, which is the, the other big issue that we have here, which is, is going to be on the scale of uh, 12,000 lightning strikes is at some point we'll have an earthquake, right? And when that happens, it's going to be equivalent of the lightning strikes. We're going to have, you know, events happening all over the place, lots of isolated individual events that are going to need attention. So anything we can do now to understand that and to prepare is going to save time and lives. Well, and Charlie, I want to thank you, not just for our time together today, but I'm somebody who is deeply uh, amazed by and uh, head over heels inspired by legendary entrepreneurs. And to see you and your team apply literally some of the most leading edge enterprise technologies, cloud technologies, data to everything technologies, et cetera, et cetera, AI, of course, machine learning, all of it to this problem. Um, Really, thank you so much for it. And Chief Cox, I know it's corny to say, but I don't give a shit. Thank you. And I got to believe I speak for everybody in California and certainly everybody in Santa Cruz. We love you. We love Cal Fire. The job you did here was incredible. The job you guys do every year is incredible. Your service to our state, to our country, the lives that you have saved is incalculable. The comfort you gave us this summer, unbelievable. And our family at the time, this is a whole other story, was going through something very horrible. And so knowing you guys were um, doing what you were doing, I just can't thank you enough. You literally saved God knows how many millions of dollars and many, many, many lives. And we owe you as much gratitude as we can possibly uh, owe a person and, and, and the whole team. Thank you so much. Thanks, Chris. That makes it all worth it right there. I really appreciate that. Come back anytime, gentlemen. I love you both. Thank you so much. Right. Stay Thank legendary. You. Thanks, and I owe you both a lot of beers. <laughs> <laughs> we'll call you on that one. <laughs> oh, yes, please. <laughs> well, there they are. Chief Jonathan Cox and CEO Charlie Croker from Zone Haven. And if you enjoyed that conversation as much as we did around here, please share it on social media and share it with your friends. If we need one thing right now, we need some inspiration. And um, I find these incredible leaders very inspiring. I also think it's important to note that Cal Fire and Zone Haven and all the other agencies responsible for saving Northern California this, uh, this fall season did it in the face of a global pandemic. How much more could we ask and how much more could they possibly give? Thank you so much. Now, as you might know, my first business was a great success. But then it wasn't. It failed spectacularly. And one of the key reasons it failed was we did not have the financial visibility and control that we needed. That's why I'm so proud that uh, my friends at Oracle NetSuite are our founding sponsor. NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system. Whether you're doing a million dollars or a hundred million dollars or beyond, NetSuite is what you need. As a matter of fact, NetSuite is the cloud business system for over 19,000 companies from over 200 countries. Learn how to build the legendary foundation your business needs today at netsuite.com slash different. That's netsuite.com slash different. 
Because if you don't know your numbers, you don't know your business. And I think you want to know your business. Now, another thing that's emerged here in 2020 is it's become very clear that data is an essential service. And the cloud is an essential service. And that also means that our IT professionals have become essential workers. My friends at Splunk, the category queens and kings of data to everything, they help you bring data to every question, every decision, and every action. And Splunk wants to say a big thank you to all of the digital heroes who've scaled to meet the challenge of 2020. It is a miracle that the internet did not blow up in 2020. It is a miracle that there have not been catastrophic security breaches all day, every day. No other industry has ever been tasked with responding to a crisis quite in the way the tech industry has. So Splunk wants to say a big thank you to everybody in the technology industry. And if you want to learn how to turn data into doing, visit splunk.com slash D, the number two, the letter E. And of course, we would like to thank the legendary Charlie Croker, founder and CEO of Zone Haven. You can find him at zonehaven, all one word, dot com. And legendary uh, Cal Fire Chief Jonathan Cox, Chief Cox. How much more thanks can one uh, give to another guy? I, I want to buy a, a ton of beer. <laughs> Jonathan, let me know when you're around. And I also want to um, reiterate that this episode is dedicated to all of our legendary first responders who've done so much uh, in this incredibly tough year of 2020. My friends at OneLifeFullyLive.org, the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. My friends at Squadcast.fm, uh, podcasting is exploding in all the right ways for all the all positive reasons. And if you want to have a legendary podcast, record it on Squadcast.fm. And my friends at Atrenet, A-T-R-E dot N-E-T, have been building legendary B2B websites in Silicon Valley for over 20 years. Check them out. And rumor has it there's a new podcast coming from Atrenet called Conquer Your Category. Pay close attention. Uh, my friends at Bottleneck.online want to help scale you with the power of a distant assistant. Check out Bottleneck.online today. And if you want to do legendary marketing in Australia, my friends at Rapid Media are there for you. Check out rapidmedia.com.au. All right, I need to remind you that this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. All rights do remain perturbed. Clearly, this uh, podcast and oddcast gets created in a studio that does contain nuts. We're produced by uh, living podcast legend Jason DeFilippo. Check out his podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks. Technical Awesomeness and Lockhead.com by Jamie J and Sarah Knox. Show notes by Diane Gervasio. And Candy Dandy keeps all the trains running on time. Love you, Mom and Dad. And um, hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go out to Harvey Weinstein. Sorry, Harv. We just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Please stay safe. Take good care of each other. Stay legendary. And until we're together again, follow your difference.